Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a trial date is set for New Jersey's senior senator just in time for the 2024 primary. This as the state Senate Republican caucus calls for an investigation into the attorney general's office. We want to get to the bottom of just how many meetings were held at Senator Menendez's office with either the attorney general or members of the office of the attorney general. Also, NJ Decides 2023, a deep dive into the hotly contested Senate rematch in Central Jersey's District 16. Absolutely, it's an advantage for Republicans because in, in a low turnout election, uh, these votes are magnified. Plus, extending the subway? New Jersey congressmen call on New York to extend the seven line, hoping to alleviate the costs associated with the latest congestion pricing plan. The idea of being able to get from New Jersey to Queens in a one-seat ride, it's epic. And protecting the disabled community. Disability Rights NJ launches an investigation into why our nursing homes are housing people with developmental and intellectual disabilities at all. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, Let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new long-term, sustainable, clean energy future for New Jersey. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Tuesday night. I'm Brianna Venosi. Senator Bob Menendez's corruption trial date is set. A Manhattan federal judge on Monday scheduled the trial for New Jersey's senior U.S. Senator, his wife Nadine Arslanian Menendez, and three other co-defendants for May 6th, just weeks before voters head to the polls for the state's primary election, where Menendez's seat is on the ballot. Political analysts say that'll likely hurt his odds if he seeks re-election. Menendez and his wife are accused of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes from a trio of businessmen in exchange for official acts taken by Menendez using his high-ranking Senate position. He and the four other defendants have pleaded not guilty to the charges, and Menendez has so far refused to step down from his seat, despite mounting pressure from state and national Democrats. Meanwhile, state Senate Republicans are looking to launch an investigation into allegations that Menendez used his influence to disrupt a case by the attorney general's office against one of his co-defendants. As senior political correspondent David Cruz reports, those hearings would be on a collision course with another critical statewide election. Tying the alleged Menendez corruption to state-level Democrats up for election in the fall is a challenge Republicans have accepted. And the angle of their most vigorous effort is the conversations Senator Menendez may have had with either the former Attorney General, Gerbeer Graywall, or a high-ranking member of the AG's office about Menendez co-defendant Jose Uribe. Senator Mike Testa is one of the members of the GOP caucus who signed on to a letter calling for the Senate Judiciary Committee to convene with a special counsel and subpoena power 
to look into the AG's office. And that's something that is really concerning to me, that either the attorney general or a member of the office of attorney general would meet with the United States senator and even entertain a conversation at an attempt at an intervention into a pending criminal investigation or criminal charges. The indictment mentions the meetings, doesn't suggest a quid pro quo, but notes that the meetings were never reported to federal prosecutors and that Uribe took a plea deal, the resolution of which says the indictment was, quote, more favorable for the New Jersey defendant than the prosecutor's initial plea offer earlier in the case. Typically, there are what are called escalating plea offers. So it, it, it's odd to me that somehow the plea offer got better as time went on rather than having an escalated plea offer, which is which sort of is how uh, the modus operandi of most prosecutors' offices in the state of New Jersey and certainly in dealing with, with the feds. That raises some concerns. It also, you know, what raised concern for me is Senator Menendez's uh, alleged um, take from those meetings and in, in, in that he said that it was a good meeting and he thought that the meeting went very well. We didn't hear back from the attorney general's office for this story, but A.G. Matt Platkin was pretty adamant in the hours after the indictment came out, releasing a seemingly preemptive statement that said, quote, the conduct alleged in the indictment occurred prior to my tenure as attorney general and involved a matter that was resolved prior to my time in office. Platkin first came to wide attention for his role in the early days of the Murphy administration. You remember the who hired Al Alvarez hearings. Republicans like him as a target for their jabs. Judiciary member John Bramnick isn't expecting to see an investigation anytime soon, but he says the message should be clear. Under no circumstances does an elected official call a prosecutor's office uh, for any reason except to report a crime. That's unethical. There's no reason to call, because if you're calling about anything except reporting a crime, the inference is you have a stake in the outcome on either side of it. Which state Republicans hope you will think is obvious and blame the other party for not getting it. Also, no word from the Senate president on whether hearings are on the horizon. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. One of the most watched legislative races this year is a rematch in District 16 between incumbent Democratic Senator Andrew Zwicker and Mike Pappas, a former Republican congressman who's been launching a political comeback. As senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, the race appears to hinge on a polarizing issue with each candidate's base. Pick your issue from the list of culture war topics like abortion and it pops up in New Jersey's 16th legislative district race. Pro-choice incumbent Democrat Senator Andrew Zwicker cast his own daughter in a campaign ad that attacks Republican challenger Mike Pappas. Pappas wants to ban all abortions, including cases of rape and incest. Completely out of touch with the vast majority of New Jerseyans. And to be clear, that's not a Democratic or unaffiliated or even many Republican issue, right? It crosses party aisle. It's an extreme, extreme case. What is your position plainly on abortion? My, my position has been established many years ago and, and has not changed. His position 
is among the most radical of any legislator in New Jersey. He voted for a measure to permit abortion right up to the moment of birth. In off-year elections, both sides need to galvanize their base and get those voters to the polls when no big names top the ballot. For many Democrats this fall, it means rallying around abortion rights, even though that's already protected by New Jersey statute. But funding and access are not, says Planned Parenthood, which endorsed 97 legislative candidates, including Zwicker. There is still a ton that could be done to dismantle access to abortion. The legality of abortion is protected in New Jersey, but access for abortion can still, you know, very much sits in the hands of the legislature and the governor. The problem for Pappas, to go back to numbers, is simply that this district and this state are so overwhelmingly pro-choice, and his position is going to be out of step with a large majority of his voters in his district. Certainly abortion's an issue and uh, not surprised the Democrats are going there. Uh, and they're going there because they don't want to talk about the other issues that are facing the state right now. Uh, parental rights and what's happening on, in schools about keeping secrets from parents. Republican strategist Chris Russell says Pappas is connecting with voters on the parental rights issue. And with school board seats on the ballot this November, that may draw voters who wouldn't ordinarily have turned out for legislative races. Absolutely, it's an advantage for Republicans because in, in a low turnout election, uh, these votes are magnified, right? The importance of these votes are magnified. Speaking of turnout, the 16th may look like a swing district with 36% registered Democrats, 26% Republicans, and the rest unaffiliated. But its demographics have shifted, says writers Mike Rasmussen. They're worried about taxes and Trump. If we know that anybody is going to vote in New Jersey, it's going to be the kind of voters in this district who have been voting Democratic and not really with Trump. Pappas won't say whether he'd back the former president. Uh, I've not endorsed a candidate, and uh, certainly my focus right now is the state legislative election. Pappas has been outspent by the incumbent in this campaign. He challenged Zwicker for the Senate seat in 2021 and lost by some 5,200 votes. This is the rematch. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Well, we're starting to get a clearer picture of how New York City's congestion pricing plan will affect New Jersey drivers. The city's board, tasked with creating the new toll system, met on Monday to consider discounts between $4 and $7 for motorists who use the Holland and Lincoln tunnels, along with drivers using the Queens Midtown Tunnel and Brooklyn Battery Tunnel heading into Manhattan. But we still don't know what the base toll to enter Midtown Manhattan will cost. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, is considering the congestion pricing plan to reduce traffic and air pollution, but also to help raise funds for transportation projects. It'll charge motorists who drive south of 60th Street in Manhattan as much as 23 bucks during peak hours. Governor Murphy and other high-ranking New Jersey officials are fighting the plan, which is slated to go into effect in spring 2024 at the earliest. That battle is also reviving a 10-year-old proposal to extend the New York City subway's 7 train to Sea Caucus, a boon for roughly 128,000 riders. But as Ted Goldberg reports, the price tag for the project may make it dead on arrival. Sea Caucus Junction handles more than 16,000 riders a month. Some of those passengers would be pretty happy if New York subway system found a way to end up here. I have to wait for one hour for my train because I missed the 
A41 train. The tra transfer is kind of, it's kind of not easy. A long-shelved plan would extend the 7 line into Sea Caucus and could be a big bonus for commuters and Mets fans. That'd be a big plus because um, take it from here, right, take it right into City Field. It would save you a lot more time, probably 30 minutes. The idea of being able to get from New Jersey to Queens and a one-seat ride, it, it's epic. Felicia Park Rogers works for the nonprofit Tri-State Transportation Campaign. Anything that we can do to plan for the long-term regional access is a great thing to do. She says this ambitious plan could be done if New Jersey and New York cooperate. A feasibility study done 10 years ago says it's doable but expensive. Park Rogers estimates it would cost well over $10 billion. I think it would have to be entirely reevaluated under the new Hudson Tunnels plan. Um, and if that would be shared, there's already a lot of competition in those tunnels for tracks and trains. Uh, new Jersey Transit desperately needs more tunnel space to be able to increase its capacity of trains into New York. Congressman Bill Pascrell and Rob Menendez sent a letter to New York's MTA hoping to revive the plan. In that letter, they say, quote, while we disagree with the MTA's decision to move forward with congestion pricing, we look forward to engaging in a productive dialogue that will both benefit New Jersey residents and further the plan's stated goals of getting cars off the road. If it is currently being pursued as a poke in the eye around congestion pricing, um, you know, this is a long-term big project. Let's revive it. Let's look at it. The congestion pricing funds is not an endless pot of money. Um, it, it is estimated to raise $15 billion. Um, by statute, that is slotted towards MTA capital projects in the capital project budget. The MTA's Traffic Mobility Review Board met last night to discuss some of the particulars with congestion pricing. We have consistently added uh, service, um, and I think we can't discount that at all. Um, additional service on, on across eight lines, and then by next year, an additional uh, 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 four lines will have additional service. Those additional lines did not include expanding the seven train, and the letter signed by Pascrell and Menendez was not mentioned. It's an admirable uh, goal, but I don't think it's one that can be achieved in a short term and a, a small time frame. Even over a long time frame and a multi-billion dollar price tag, it's a tough task to bridge Sea Caucus Junction to New York subways, even if it would benefit thousands of New Jerseyans in the process. In Sea Caucus, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Another investigation into New Jersey's veterans' homes backs up the same scathing findings in previous reports. The State Commission of Investigation today released its analysis showing the COVID-19 pandemic exposed at times deadly flaws with management and operations at the Paramus and Menlo Park veterans' homes. That's where nearly 200 people died from COVID-related causes. The investigation found the homes were unprepared for massive absenteeism 
from frontline staff, had major communication breakdowns, and no clear plan to isolate sick patients. Now, many of those issues persist today, according to the report. The SCI is also backing calls to remove the nursing homes from under the Department of Military and Veterans Affairs. Meantime, Disability Rights NJ, which is the state's protection and advocacy system for people with disabilities, is releasing its own investigation into nursing homes. It found that among those who died from the coronavirus living in one of those facilities were a large number of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, people the organization argue shouldn't have been there in the first place. To dig into the investigation, I'm joined now by Gwen Orlowski, the executive director, and Bren Pramonic, the managing attorney for Disability Rights NJ. It's great to have you both here with me. Gwen, let me start with you. Why did the organization launch this investigation? And what did you find? Because in the report, you wrote that these hospital-like environments were dismal places for anyone to live. So before COVID, we had a presence in nursing homes, and we started to notice an increased number of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities there. And that just isn't the right setting for those individuals in most cases. And then at the beginning of COVID, it was clearly a crisis in nursing homes all across the state of New Jersey. And it quickly came to our attention that people with disabilities in general, but in particular people with intellectual and developmental disabilities were you know, just at high risk and that um, this needed our attention. And so uh, once we were able to get back into nursing homes, we were, and that's what helped us um, make the decision to launch this into a systemic investigation. What were the key findings uh, once you launched it? The state doesn't really know uh, how many people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are in New Jersey's no nursing homes. So there's no official count? No official count, no. And our second finding was that the federal rules that talk about people going into nursing homes with intellectual and developmental disabilities that are really meant to protect those individuals and have them have the opportunity to be in the least restrictive setting, in the most integrated setting in the community. Sure. What's best for them. Exactly. It wasn't working. And then the third thing that we found is that the entire system just does not recognize the right of people with developmental disabilities to make their own decisions about where they live and to be supported in a very person-centered way in that, um, in those decisions and then in the services and supports that they get. So, Bren, you were involved, uh, as I understand, with doing, what, site visits and, and in-person interviews? What did that look like and, and what did people tell you? We, as part of this investigation, thought that we, it was important for us to see as many of those individuals as possible and speak to them. So we visited um, a, over 70 nursing homes. Um, these, these nursing homes really are, I think there's sometimes a misconception that maybe, I think home sometimes is a misconception that we use that word. Um, these are institutions, these are hospital-like settings, and a lot of them um, really are dismal. And I think places that I certainly walked into and thought I would never want to live here I wouldn't want anybody in my family to live here. Um, so again, we thought it was really important to speak to as many people as possible and um, really get a sense from them about what it was like living in these institutional settings and, and if they wanted to even do that. And quickly, does it appear that these nursing homes have replaced what have um, typically been uh, the homes, group settings, um, other better fitted facilities for folks with intellectual developmental disabilities? 
I, I would simply say no. It's just it is not something that's happening. Um, quickly, Gwen, for me, what do you all recommend in the last few seconds that we have? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, the state has to know who these people are, where they are, and they really have to know what these people want and need in their lives. Um, we need to recreate that federal system that I was talking about to ensure that people have the opportunity when they're at risk of nursing home placement to have community-based options and the services and supports that they need. And all of that is really to further their constitutional right in New Jersey to make decisions about where they live and how they live those lives. And so um, we want the state to really be aggressive in moving this system towards that. Bren Pramonic and Gwen Orlowski, thank you so much uh, for sharing this investigation with us. Thank you. Thank you. In our Spotlight on Business report, the state is combating criticism over a lack of diversity in the recreational weed market through a new grant program. Today, unveiling the winners of its Cannabis Equity Grant Initiative, aimed at helping startups in the cannabis industry with operation costs during those early years of business. Melissa Rose Cooper reports. We're a family, minority, and women-owned business. We're passionate about normalizing the plant and building a diverse and vibrant cannabis industry. And by the end of the year, the doors to Niger will finally be open to the public. The cannabis dispensary in Bloomfield is one of 48 businesses awarded a cannabis equity grant through the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. In a world where women founders receive just 2% of all venture capital with similarly dismal numbers for minority entrepreneurs, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority's Joint Venture Grant provides a much-needed lifeline to independent, diversely-owned, and social equity cannabis businesses. With this grant, we'll be able to pay our bills, open NYCHAR faster, better market the business, and hire talented employees from the local community. The recipients are part of the first phase of the program, awarding $250,000 to equitable businesses in the cannabis industry. What we're doing here today really brings together two really important themes of Governor Murphy's time in office. One is economic diversification. And the other is sort of small, is small business, particularly with equity. Tim Sullivan of the NJEDA says the grants will help ensure fair representation in the market. Access to capital is a challenge for small businesses, particularly minority-owned small businesses, in every sector all the time. And in some cases, the solution is a loan. Um, in some solution, cases, the solution has to be a grant. Because when, when people of means want to start a new business, they often go to their friends and family. Not everybody has friends and family with a couple hundred thousand dollars laying around that they can spot their friends and family to you know, start up a new, a new business that is risky, that might not make money. But Governor Murphy and the legislature and the people of New Jersey are going to be your friends and family here. Members of the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission say the grants are proof of the state's continued commitment to providing meaningful opportunities to all cannabis businesses. As of today, more than 300 cultivators, manufacturers, dispensaries, and testing laboratories have received initial approval to move towards becoming operational. And that number is growing fast. As of our last public meeting, uh, more than 1,500 conditional and annual licenses have been awarded, and many more are making their way through the application process. We write laws, right? We, we do legislation, and it becomes a law. But you know what, what actually warms my heart? When I see that it's being implemented, when I see that it's actually working, and to have 48 recipients to receive a grant, oh my gosh, that is amazing. Applications for the second phase of the Cannabis Equity Grant Program will open up next month. For NJ Spotlight News, 
I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. Another offshore wind developer is jumping into the mix of companies looking to bring the renewable energy source to New Jersey. New York-based Attentive Energy plans to build an offshore wind farm about 42 miles off the Jersey Shore in the area near Seaside Heights, making it one of the farthest from land out of any of the East Coast wind projects to date. Now that could make it an attractive proposal for those who worry the site of wind turbines will deter tourism and bring down property values. The company says its wind turbines won't be visible from the coastline and will bring enough energy to power 600,000 homes. Attentive is now one of four wind developers vying to build projects here since the state started collecting proposals in August. But the industry has struggled to make progress due to supply chain issues, higher interest rates, and even public pushback. The state is expected to decide what projects, if any, will move forward by early next year. You can read more about the plan in Tom Johnson's article on njspotlightnews.org. On Wall Street, traders are keeping an eye on rising Treasury yields. Here's how the markets close today. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. Have some water. Look at these kids. How are you? What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member. If you need to see a doctor, RWJ Barnabas Health has two easy ways to do it from anywhere. You can see an urgent care provider 24-7 on any device with our Telemed app. Or use our website to book a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist, even as a new patient. You've taken every precaution, and so have we. So don't delay your care any longer. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.